my cell bill is so expensive because I was using data to do a bunch of stuff when our internet was down, including making my child happy. So. Oh, I was going to say, can you claim any of it for work? No. <laughs> Mostly YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Peppa Pig might not turn up on there reasons for not even peppa pig this kid watches like mickey mouse in german and kids playing in languages i do not understand italian german russian that could either be really good for her long term or really bad well at least she doesn't know what they're saying so you don't know that she can learn italian all of a sudden and she's now like pro mussolini and then you're stuck like what happened i don't know where we went wrong that's true (laughs) youtube I mean, we know she's been exposed to Nazis on YouTube, so... That is true, and that's all you. (laughs) That is all me. (laughs) Well, to be fair, it's Daffy... It's Doug. Daffy? Daffy Duck. Daffy Duck. Not Doug's bunny. Oh, boy. (laughs) It's really warm up here. (laughs) We're gonna lose Elise. Welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And it is episode 52. We have Ooh. a full deck of cards now at this point. We Yay. could skip over enough uh, British royals to find a Protestant to come to the throne. They had to skip over 52 to get from the Catholics to the Protestants after Anne died. It's very awkward. <laughs> it would be. Like, nope, 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 do you remember that movie, Uncle, not Uncle Buck, um, the royal family dies and it's like either Dan Aykroyd or... King Ralph. Yes, King Ralph, yes. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. With Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, yeah, it got so bad that they had to go to the Germans. <laughs> so we started with the Georges and the Saxe-Cokesburgs and we got a little Victoria out of it, so I guess it's okay, but still, it was an awkward conversation for Parliament to have with 51 people. <laughs> So, Catholic? All right. So I see here on your resume. (laughs) That was before. This is a list of things you can't ask in an interview. Yes, way before. (laughs) I was scrolling through the um, Google News on my thing, and, like, the headline was, like, what could keep Prince uh, George off the throne? And I was like, what? Like, we're already here. The kid's, like, what, six? Like, we're talking, like, years. Like, what is it? It was clickbait. Because, like, the entire story was how, like, if he chose to be a Catholic, he wouldn't get the throne. And I was like, yeah, but, like, if he chose to be Muslim or if he chose to be Buddhist or, like, I don't know, if he chose to be a woman, it would probably keep him off the throne at this point because they aren't that kind of socially advanced. So, like, (laughs) why are we having this conversation now? (laughs) Also, children don't usually change their religions that their parents raised them in. And when Granny is the head of the church, I'm sure it's locked in even better. (laughs) Like... Great granny. Great granny. True. Yes. 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 So, yeah, it was a weird bad kind of week for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Speaking of which, the Ottawa Podcast Festival, also a weird bag of a situation for us as we prep for it. Yes. Have to dig back into the old memory bank to get all the event planning information and procedures out. I know. I promised you to do the moderator notes now i need to figure out how i access the stuff to do the moderator notes (laughs) so i could actually do them in the next week or so to be fair i have to do a walkthrough at the venue so (laughs) i think we're both reaching back into the way back machine on this one (laughs) yeah 
Uh, so that's just a reminder for everyone to get your tickets for the Ottawa Podcast Festival from www.ottawapodcastfestival.com. They're only 20 bucks a pop, gets you in the door at one, gets you access to nine shows. So we're looking to end around one-ish, two-ish the next morning. In and out privileges. You're welcome to go anywhere up and down in Elgin to get your food and bring it in. But the venue has a full bar. So yeah, it'll be fun times. It'll be good. Actually, for listeners of the show, if you go to the festival website and check out with your tickets and enter the discount code PODFAN2019 at checkout, you'll get 25% off or five bucks off the total ticket cost. So again, that's the discount code PODFAN2019, P-O-D-F-A-N-2019. 2019 and podfan is all caps at checkout and you'll get 25% off each ticket. So we definitely want to see you there. And then that's happening on a Saturday and we normally post our shows on a Sunday, but um, you know me, I'm usually in bed by like eight. Yes. So because I'm going to have to be up until like two, I doubt I'm going gonna... to like mainline some caffeine straight here. <laughs> tea, like... like just tea, like right down the gullet. <laughs> it's going to be what it's going to taste. Just like a high caffeinated <laughs> yeah. David tea. Although to be fair, I did have a dream that we were like actually at the festival. Uh, and then after you and I performed, we both went to bed and we just let things run on its own afterwards. <laughs> I woke up the next morning. I'm like, I don't think JP's going to be okay with us doing that. So, but isn't that like our kind of like happiest dream we used to do when we used to work together? We'd be like, just be like, I'm out, peeps. He's out. You're all on your own. (laughs) Lean it up. Put a lock on the door. We're fine. (laughs) So it's now invading my my sleep time as well as my daytime. I twitch is back, which has been a delightful reminder. Of the days gone by, days gone by. That entire semester was leading up to like the big gala that I was planning, and like the eye twitch like started in February or January and didn't end until April. So and now it's intermittent. So I guess that's better. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, you're just a ball of neuroses. I am for a whole lot of different ones. So. Um. On that note, we are in the podcast studio. It is warm up here. I, at least I'm dying. I had to put my hair up. So let's jump into our stories. Mm-hmm. I went first last quote unquote week, week, even though we just finished recording yeah. it 20 minutes ago. But yeah. <laughs> uh, so that means I'm going first this week. Uh, and I was fishing around for a topic, but wasn't sure what to do. So I asked you to give me a single word related to your story as a jumping off point. <laughs> At which you so well. told me exactly in very heavy detail what you were going to be doing. So, <laughs> well, at first I didn't read it properly. Right. I was like, yeah, sure. Cheesecake. And right. you were like, what? <laughs> I'm like, I thought you wanted one word off of last week, your story for last week. Because right. that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I don't know. It was a rough weekend. Okay. <laughs> So from please give me one word to here is everything I'm going to be talking about. Um, you had suggested doing a crew time. Tr- a tr- <laughs> it's going to be a rough one, guys. Uh, you had suggested doing cr- true crime. Luckily, I had a true crime story in my back pocket that I've been waiting to talk about. So I figured let's just do it now. Um, mine is uh, historical, so maybe a little bit more lighthearted than where you're going. Yeah, because where I'm going is dark. So it's a good thing I'm starting, because <laughs> I don't want to be the one who comes behind to back clean up on that. Uh, so you remember my underground civilization stories from earlier in this year? Yes. Uh, I talked about the Edinburgh vaults and how it was the hunting ground for a pair called Burke and Hare. Well, that's one of who I'm talking about this week, is the Scottish serial killers Burke and Hare. 
I also want to talk about them because M on, and that's why we drank, did the Edinburgh vaults recently and she mentioned them. And so I want to get in there and at least have it recorded before she does so it doesn't look like I'm ripping her off. (laughs) That is true because I was like, hey, Elise talked about this so that I explored it. (laughs) So, Burke and Hare. Before we get to that, though, let's set the scene. If you're not familiar, Edinburgh is the capital of Scotland, and it's located on the east coast of the island of Great Britain, where it kind of like narrows a little bit before it becomes Scotland. Uh, the original settlements in the area go back as far as the Middle Ages, when a hill fort was built on the highest point in the area, because the vantage point next to the water makes sense. It was the royal residence for the kings of Scotland starting in the 10th century. By the 14th century, it was the recognized capital of Scotland and is the current site of the Scottish Parliament. But let's talk the 1820s, which is the era of Burke and Hare. Edinburgh's early growth was down to its industries, which included printing, brewing, distilling, engineering, and pharmaceuticals. But Glasgow became the bigger and more economically important urban center by 1821 because it was positioned on the Atlantic, so the other side of the island making it the port of choice for goods coming in from the empire and people going out, which was kind of a big deal at this point in history. Uh, Edinburgh was still an important city, and it saw the usual social striations of the age. The rich were very rich, and the poor were very, very poor. And the poor would congregate in areas known as the Old Town, which was experiencing a long-term decay. It had a high mortality rate and was full of cheap tenements in narrow alleyways. Was not a fun place to live as evidenced by people willing to live in the vaults under bridges. When you choose troll life versus... Topside life. Yeah. You know it's not a good topside life. In 1865, Scottish poet Alexander Smith wrote of one of the poorer areas of the city the following. Quote, The Cowgate is the Irish portion of the city. Edinburgh leaps over it with bridges. The inhabitants are morally and geographically the lower orders. They keep to their own quarters and seldom come up to the light of day. Many an Edinburgh man has never set his foot in the street. The conditions of the inhabitants is as little known to respectable Edinburgh as are the habits of moles, earthworms, and the mining population. The people of the Cowgate seldom visit the upper streets. So, fun times. Classism at its best. Yes. (laughs) Or worse. (laughs) What Edinburgh did have going for it at this time was its famed medical school, which was founded in 1726. The philosophy of the school was based on those of the University of Bologna and Padua, uh, both of which are big names in the history of medical education. Since the Renaissance, the main way of teaching medicine was to focus on anatomy, but to do that, you needed examples, and it was hard to get volunteers. So, using people who had been executed for crimes was the main source of cadavers, but this was also the age of grave robbing, where a freshly buried corpse could find itself topside shortly after the funeral whatever it took to get bodies onto the autopsy tables. But there was one other way that the Edinburgh Medical School's beast was fed, and into this morass came William Burke and William Hare. Burke was originally from Ireland. He could read and write, uh, and he was known to have a charming and outgoing manner. He came to Scotland about 1817 as a navvy or navigator, which is a laborer working on the Union Canal. He was married with two children in Ireland, but when he came to Scotland and then wrote his wife for her to join him, she said, nah. (laughs) I'm good. I'm staying here. We're good. You just be about your business. So what's a man to do but to hook up with another woman? Enter Helen McDougall, 
who they lived together and were thought to be married, but he wasn't because he was technically married back home. And as an Irish, there was no divorce. Right. Uh, by 1828, the couple had lived together for about 10 years and were assumed to be respectably married. Burke worked a variety of trades, eventually settling on shoemaking. The second half of this equation was William Hare. Uh, he was also Irish, and he also came to Edinburgh to be a laborer. He worked in the canal basin and sold fish from a cart. He married a widow named Margaret sometime around 1826, and Margaret's first husband had run a lodging house in Tanner's Close in the West Port, and she took that over on the death of her first husband and then moved her second husband in to help run the establishment. She seemed to have had one child by her first husband and another with hair. Um, the whole hair, Burke and Hare story starts around in late 1827, so if they married in 26, she would have been pregnant throughout most of the happenings that I'm about to tell you about. Burke and Hare met when Burke and Helen moved into the Hare's lodging house, uh, and then that couple later obtained their own home on the same streets as the one that was owned and operated by Hare and Margaret. So first they lived together and then they separated. And now we can begin our tale of the macabre, now that the scene is set. And now that there's another train rolling through this village. How many trains are gonna roll through here tonight? Some days you don't hear them for a day or two and others it's nonstop. All right. In December of 1827, one of the tenants in the Hare's lodging house, an elderly army pensioner who was known as Old Donald, died of natural causes, but he died owing the Hare's four pounds. As discussed, Edinburgh of the era was a hard scramble place to live, so the quote-unquote cheated landlords did the only logical thing. They got Burke to help them remove old Donald's body from the coffin before the funeral, weighed it down with wood, and then took the body to the Edinburgh Medical School and sold it to the director of anatomy, Robert Knox. I mean, what else could you do? Exactly. You had to make your money somewhere. Old Donald's earthly remains were worth seven pounds and ten shillings. And I can only imagine what happened when they got home from the medical school in that transaction and just looked at each other and went, wow, that was easy. <laughs> so easy. We need that. That was easy, button. Yeah, exactly. In early 1828, so just a couple months later, the pair decided to go into a new line of business, supplying bodies to the medical school. Of course they did. When one of Hare's lodgers became ill, rather than risk seeing him recover, Burke and Hare got him drunk and then suffocated him while holding him down. Because this method left no sign on the body, which would raise questions slash lower the body's value when selling it, this became their preferred MO and eventually became known as Birking. Yeah, Birk, I-N-G, Birking. Oh dear. Yeah. And there were no shortage of potential victims. Edinburgh's poor and transient populations was constantly in flux and it was unlikely to raise too many eyebrows if some of them just happened to go missing and never came back one day. Burke and Hare fell into a pattern of luring their unexpected victims into the Hare's lodging house and then murdering them and selling their bodies. But like most criminals who get caught, the pair made dumb mistakes that eventually led to their downfall. One of their favorite pools of people to pull from were the local prostitutes. For example, Janet Brown was lucky to have escaped with her life when she and a friend, Mary Patterson, were invited to stay uh, by Burke at their home. Having excused herself earlier in the evening, Janet returned to find that her friend was missing and was told that Mary and Burke had quote-unquote stepped out. Though she waited for Mary to return, Janet eventually decided to leave, having no idea that Mary was lying dead in the next room, ready to be taken to Knox, and that she herself was the next likely victim. So she escaped, luckily. The problem? 
Well, when Mary was laid out on Knox's autopsy table, a number of his students recognized her as a prostitute of the area. <laughs> the same went for two other bodies that Knox dissected in front of classrooms. So, young men at medical school <laughs> were spending their time with the prostitutes and then saying, hey, she looks familiar. I've seen that before. <laughs> So who were these other two prostitutes that uh, Knox's students recognized? Well, they were Mary Halden, who went missing after seeing Burke and Hare. So her daughter Peggy went to the lodging house to ask about her mother, her mother, to ask about her mother, only to end up disappearing as well. Yeah. So Burke and Hare then got lazy and started pulling from people that were less than forgettable, including a young street performer known as Daft Jamie. The problem here was that Jamie had an unmistakable deformity of one of his feet. So when Knox's students immediately recognized him, the professor denied it was him, but just to be safe, started that particular lesson by removing the foot in question and then dissecting the boy's face. <sighs> yeah, it's it's not Jamie, I promise. But I'll just like coincidentally, I'm gonna take off the like two identifying features that like are, make him easily identifiable as such. So coincidence. <laughs> the the instructor also knew what was going on. Uh, tip and a nod, like a wink and a nod situation here, yeah. By October of 1828, the ghoulish partnership was starting to sour. Burke was suspicious that Hare and his wife were cutting him and Helen out of the sales to Professor Knox. So the Burks started taking in their own lodgers, either to make up the income lost from the body sales or to run their own operation of procuring bodies for sale. The last victim that the pair murdered occurred in uh, occurred on Halloween of 1828. Mary Dorshirt was an elderly Irish woman who had been staying with the Burks after they had convinced her that she was related to them. Also staying with the Burks were Alice and James Gray. When Mary went missing, the Grays started asking questions and were told that Mary had been overly friendly with Burke and so had been asked to leave because an elderly Irish woman who thinks she's related to you is going to hit on the male owner of the house, of course. So that was the story that the Burks had given the Greys. Uh, in fact, she had been murdered and was under the bed in the home spare bedroom, which Alice and James were told that they were never, ever to enter. Of course, Alice, being very much like me, at the first opportunity she had, she went into the room and found the body. <laughs> it was pretty instantaneous. Uh, when Helen Burke found out that they knew about the body, she offered them 10 pounds a week to keep quiet. And that was a huge sum of money. Like if they sold old Dougal for seven pounds and that offset some costs, like they were able to, like, that's at least one body, if yeah. not a body and a half worth of a week. So how are they going to make up that money? Like, yeah, astounding. Anyway. They would eventually murder them and sell them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As you usually do when you offer to blackmail someone, it's with a plan to kill them at the end of it anyway. Yeah. Uh, the Greys would not be bought, however, and went straight to the police, who returned to the Burke's home to find that the body had already been removed to the medical school. Right. Off they went to the medical school, and there it was on Dr. Knox's uh, autopsy table, and they confiscated it before he had a chance to use it in a lesson. Consequently, uh, this body was the only victim that they were able to autopsy, because everyone else had already been autopsied and disposed of through the medical school's lesson plans. Awkward. So once the cat was out of the bag, things moved quickly. Both couples, the Burks and the Hares, were taken up for questioning separately, and they all blamed each other. Of course. Of course. <laughs> because the majority of the bodies had been dissected and disposed of, the only firm case the prosecution had was in relation to Mary uh, Dorchetree. 
Dorcher tree? Yeah, Dorcher tree. Dorcher tree. D O C H E R T Y. Dorcher tree. Dorcher tree. Dorcher tree. No, but I feel like I keep like jamming it. Anyway. Yeah, you keep jamming an extra syllable. R in there. there. Yeah. <laughs> Mary. <laughs> Worried it still wouldn't be enough, however, the prosecution made a deal with William and Margaret Hare. They offered them immunity if they would testify against William and Helen Burke. They jumped at the opportunity, of course. The trial of William Burke began on December 24th, 1828, and he stood accused of murdering Mary Dortetree, Mary Patterson, the prostitute, and James Wilson, who was the actual name for Daft Jamie, the young boy. His wife, Helen, was charged just with the murder of Dorchetry. The charges against Helen were eventually dismissed, but Burke was found guilty and sentenced to hang, which happened on January 28, 1829, in front of an estimated crowd of 25,000 people. It was a big pull. It was a sensational news story at the time. No Netflix, so you go to the hanging anyway, but like because of the sensational nature of the crime, everyone wanted and to hear got away with it. Yeah. Okay. The story continues. Following the hanging, and this is what I like, this is a good dose of karma, Burke's body was put on display for the public. One estimate says that 60 people per minute saw the body, totaling thousands throughout the entire display period. Uh, He was also laid out naked, so... (laughs) (laughs) Shrinkage! Yeah. After this public viewing period had ended, uh, the body was donated to the medical school. Some of the medical students had a real wicked sense of humor, uh, and they took a piece of his skin as a souvenir and used it to bind a book with Burke's skin, 1829, stamped in gold on the front. Because otherwise, what are you going to do with just a random flap of skin that's kicking around? Like, you might as well make it useful. So they learned a lot from his crimes, but like, not the right way. So they had to do something. Burke's skeleton is still on display at the Surgeon's Hall Museum. If you find yourself in Edinburgh looking for something to do, you can always stop by and visit with Mr. Burke, including his death mask is there next to it as well. Or you can check out the Edinburgh Anatomical Museum's website as they've digitized a bunch of images, including pictures of Burke's skeleton and the death mask. So he can join you in your home now as well. Yay! But what about the other three conspirators, you ask? The public was rightly pissed that Hare got off without any consequences. Daft Jamie's mother tried to have fresh charges brought against him, but it never worked out. He was released from custody in February 1829 and was last seen boarding a postal coach for London. While there's a rumor that he was recognized and blinded by a mob in London and lived out the rest of his life as a pauper, the truth is he was never seen again. He just disappears into history's amalgam of events. Both Helen and Margaret were mobbed everywhere they went, There's a rumor that Helen escaped to Australia, where she died in 1868, and Margaret is said to have fled to Ireland after a lucky escape from mobs in Glasgow. While Professor Knox actively encouraged Burke and Hare to supply him with as many bodies as quickly as possible, he was acquitted from any charges in the whole affair because he had plausible deniability that they were murdered bodies. Before his hanging, Burke confessed his crimes and absolved Knox of any knowledge of the origins of the bodies. I'm going to say that I'm giving Elise really exaggerated eye rolls, shady eye. Yes. Uh-huh. Barely. Yeah. But I mean, he was on his way out. Like, he was about to be hanged, so... Might as well throw the dock a lifeline. Yeah. I, I think it's a plausible deniability thing. Like... Yes. He probably had a really good idea of where they were coming from. Especially when they were like, hey, isn't this the street performer yeah. with the... And he's like, oh, 
look that way while I chop off his foot. Yeah. And let's disfigure his face a little. It's not him at all. (laughs) So Knox left Edinburgh shortly after the trials and moved to London in an attempt to salvage a ruined career. But the whole affair kind of followed him down there, but not for the reason why you're thinking. Burke and Hare inspired a gang of London only a few years later to follow in their footsteps. Of course. Yeah. The London Burkers of the East End either robbed freshly buried bodies from the grave or they murdered people. And the purpose was to supply anatomists with specimens. Occurring only a few years after the Edinburgh murders, the entire situation showed how corrupt the medical sciences were and brought alight the whole industry that had previously been unknown. As a result, in 1832, the British Parliament passed the Anatomy Act, and this law allowed doctors, anatomy lecturers, and medical students greater access to cadavers and allowed for the legal donation of bodies to medical science. And this law basically put an end to the illegal body snatcher trade. Which is good. Which is good. Because they weren't just snatching bodies, they were also making them. Yes. So, some last words on Burke and Hare. All told, they are known to have killed 16 people between December 1827 and November 1829. Their crimes were discovered in early November 1829. The Burks were on trial by the end of December of that year, and William Burke was hung within the month. So Scottish justice moved very fast in the 1820s. We went from discovery to execution in a matter of four months, three months. Yeah, that's pretty quick. But then... It's not like they were doing a forensic science. It was like, hey, we caught you. Yes. Who's going to turn on who? And we're going to get confessions. Yeah. Yeah. But like all serial killers, the official body count and the likely body count are two very different numbers. It's generally thought that the pair and their wives killed upwards of 30 people, even though only 16 are known. Later in 1829, after Burke's hanging, a notebook was found in a tin box buried under a stone near the Burke's home. If authentic, this notebook appears to contain a list that was written by Burke of the murders, including how much money they got for each of the bodies. He refers to his victims with such charming epithets as Donald the Pensioner, the woman from Gilmerton, the old woman who came to the lodge, and the child, and the Englishman. Like, not even names, just, yeah, and how he did away with the child is not good. Don't tell me. Okay. Uh, In that list, in that notebook, uh, Burke allegedly noted how the money was split between him and Hare and what some of the expenses incurred for their crimes were. Like, they had to pay a porter fees to transport the bodies with them, and they bought a herring barrel to put some of the bodies in. He also notes... But if he was the one controlling the money, how was Hare ripping him off? Well, he thought that he was running side gigs, so he was killing people on his own with his wife and selling them. Okay, so then he decided to do that. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, in this notebook, it's also noted how much of the money that they used for drink. It was a lot. <laughs> like, I suspect. Four you... pounds for me, five pounds for you, three pounds for the beer. <laughs> like, that's how it rolls. And the most expensive body was that of young Jamie, or, um,. Daft Jamie, sorry, young Jamie, clearly an Outlander fan. Uh, Daft Jamie, who came in at like 15 or 17 pounds, which was huge money at the time. But I guess because of the deformity, if you're trying to teach anatomy, perfection only gets you so far. You have to start looking at the odd cases. But then they had to chop off the foot. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, no money lost a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, he wasn't connected enough with the stews to know that that would have been a recognizable flaw. 
So like I said, this list, I have doubts because it only does list those 16. But yeah. if the historical record thinks it's actually 30. Probably this, not his. Probably not. Was it sensationalist? If it was, why was there just a percentage of the bodies listed? So uh, this is the fun of history. You never quite know. And that is the dastardly tale of the serial killers, William Burke and William Hare. Dun dun. Dun dun. <laughs> but uh, tell me your story. Because I I hear it's going to be a real fun time. Oh, yeah. It's going to be lots of fun facts. So, sadly, uh, the last few weeks, the news have been heavy on the murder and murderers. Mm -hmm. With the three recent mass shootings in the U.S. and the massive manhunt here in Canada. Wait, three? Yeah. In the last week, there's been three. The Gilroy Garlic Festival. Oh, okay. Where three people were shot. Then Texas. And then two back-to-back within 12 hours. Yeah. Got it. (laughs) That's really sad that I completely forgot about the Garlic Festival. <laughs> it didn't get as much uh, press, I don't think. Um, so I wanted to dive a wee bit deeper. I love true crime podcasts. I listen to Uncover, and that's why we drink, Morbid, and a few other one-offs. So let's start with the one here at home. Cam McLeod and Briar Blensky. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. I probably should have watched some news before this. <laughs> Um, who have been charged with the murder of Leonard Dyke and are suspected in the murders of Lucas Fowler and Cheyenne Denise. These are the two young men, ages 18 and 19, mm. who were best friends and after graduating high school decided to drive to Whitehorse in search of work. They left their Vancouver Island home in early July to do this epic road trip. As you do, as you do yeah, in... Right of passage. Yeah. You hit the Thames and then you hit the road. Exactly. The family members of both Cam and Briar lost contact with them in about mid-July. Hmm. July 15th, police found the bodies of 23-year-old Lucas Fowler from Australia and his girlfriend, 24-year-old Cheyenne Denise... D-E-E-S-E. Denise? Denise. From the U.S. on the side of the Alaskan Highway close to the U- B.C. and Yukon border. They were found close to their van and had been killed either on July 14th or 15th. Then on July 19th, the burnt-out truck of Cam and Briar was found just off Highway 37 with no trace of them. At this time, Cam and Briar were not connected with the murders, but were considered missing persons. The same day, just two kilometers away from the burnt-out truck, the police discovered the body of a man. This man had no ID, and the police released a sketch to the public hoping that information on the victim would come in. At this point, July 19th, they had no reason to tie all three deaths and the two missing young men together. That all changed on July 23rd. Sorry, it's a bit of a dry timeline right now. Uh, That all changed on July 23rd when the police released more information and changed Cam and Briar from missing to suspects in all three murders. They were spotted July 21st at a store in Saskatchewan and had been stopped by police on a roadside liquor check in July, I think it was like 23rd or 20, sorry, it was the 22nd because it was the day before they had been changed from missing. So they were stopped by um, like a local police for a reserve. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, because they were heading into a dry community. Uh, so uh-huh. the local police used to do like random checks to make sure. You weren't bringing anything. Li- in. Yeah, bringing liquor, but they were just driving through. But they didn't have a bolo out on them at the time. Right. And they hadn't been changed from suspects. And um, so they just checked that they had no liquor and sent them on. Right. They wouldn't have known yeah. any different, right? 
hindsight's perfect. Yeah. And on July 24th, the police found the burned out remains of a gray RAV4 that the two had been driving just outside a remote community in northern Manitoba called Gillenham. Gillenham. Gil M. I'm also having issues speaking. <laughs> also, July 24th is when they announced the third victim had been identified as Leonard Dick, a 63-year-old lecturer of botany at UBC, and that both Cam and Briar were no longer suspects in his death, but had been charged in abstention. Hmm. The pair had been on the run for almost a month now. Oh, now, right now. Yeah. Uh, the pair have been on the run for almost a month and the last two weeks in the unforgiving wilderness of northern Manitoba. The last solid sighting of the pair was July 28th at a dump in a very remote First Nations community of York Landing. Hmm. RCMP have searched, been searching the location with the help of local police, councils, armed forces, and divers, but no luck yet. There has been some uncredited sightings of the pair in Ontario, but the police are still concentrating on the Manitoba wilderness. It looked intense. They had the army out helping them. Yeah, the army isn't helping anymore. Yeah. But um, they, I, I still, like some people, um, I think I talk about it later, the guy who was like the man tracker oh. was like, oh, I, I, I think that they're long gone. And But I think the reason that the police are still focusing so much on that area is that there is nothing missing for them to take. Like, right. there's no vehicles, no ATVs, no boats, no nothing that have gone right. missing. So they're in remote yeah, they're Manitoba. Walking. So if they haven't stolen anything, they haven't gone that far. Yeah. Uh, so now that we've got the timeline of the way, let's talk about a few things from that case that caused me to fall down a rabbit hole. <laughs> My first was trying to categorize this. Are they spree killers, serial killers, mass murderers, or just murderers? Okay. What do those categories mean? And how do they differ? Well, they're both allegedly murderers with the charge of second-degree murder, which in Canada means any murder that is not first-degree murder. Okay. So as soon as they're caught, more questions and answers are attained. That might change. Well, in first in Canada, first-degree murder is when a murder occurs that was planned and deliberate or contracted, was committed against an identified peace officer, was committed or attempted to commit the hijacking of an aircraft while committing or attempted to commit a sexual assault while committing or attempting to commit sexual assault with a weapon while committing or attempting to commit aggravated sexual assault while committing or attempting to commit kidnapping and forcible confinement during a hostage taking while committing sexual harassment or criminal harassment was committed during a terrorist activity while using explosives in association with a criminal organization <laughs> and while committing intimidation. So basically that's your parameters in Canada for first degree murder. Right. Anything that's not that is second degree murder. But is it like in the States where like if you tell someone like you hate them, it's considered a terroristic threat. And so we can lump this in like... I don't know. That's all I know about it. I feel like a good prosecutor could probably get that bumped up to first degree. Yeah, it depends. Like, especially if they were trying to, like, steal his car or kidnap him, like we might know. Or Or assault a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But they haven't been charged. So at this time, they have not been charged with the murders of Lucas Fowler and Cheyenne. Okay. Uh, But they are the main suspects in those murders. This puts them in the multiple murder category based on the pattern of the murders multiple killers are classified into three basic categories 
mass murderers, spree killers or rampage killers, and serial killers. Spree killers, sometimes referred to, as I said, rampage killers, murder two or more victims, but at more than one location. Okay. Although their murders occur in separate locations, their spree is considered a single event because there's no quote-unquote cooling-off period between the murders. So like Sandy Hook. Yes. Also a mass murder. Yes. Uh, Often the murders happen because of the situation that the killer finds themselves in, real or imaginary. Um, Unlike, like, a serial killer, they just sort of, like, find themselves... Right. ...in a situation where, for some reason, their psyche breaks and they think that the only way out is... Violence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Not, like trying to explain that away, but yeah, yeah. that's one of the differences between, like, a spree killer and, like, a serial killer. Yeah. Like, you would explain, like, why a lion chose to eat a person, but, like, you still eat the person. Like, yeah. you're not forgiving that. That's just the nature of the beast, right? Like, yeah. it is what it is. So, um... So there's often, like I said, it's often not a methodical reason or a compulsion behind the killing. It just tends to be, like, uh, shit. Uh, Charles Starkweather and his 14-year-old girlfriend were our classic spree killers and actually the original natural-born killers. Mm-hmm. Uh, between uh, December 1957 and January 1958, they killed 11 people in Nebraska and Wyoming. The driving force for Starkweather, for Starkweather was the perceived injustice of poverty. Okay. So, like, his girlfriend was only 14, but he was only, like, 17 when this happened. Right. But, like, he had dropped out of school. He was trying to provide for her and he couldn't because he didn't have any education and sort right. of the class system and the fact that it was the 50s and so he was just this whole like build up injustice of poverty mm-hmm. so he thought he needed to reckon the score by murdering a bunch of people i guess yeah cool beans dude makes yeah. sense uh, after spree comes serial killers serial killers murder three or more victims but each victim is killed on a separate occasion And unlike mass murderers and spree killers, serial killers usually select their victims, have a cooling-off period between murders, and plan their crimes carefully. Right. So spree killers tend to find themselves in some sort of situation that launches them on this spree, whereas serial killers tend to be methodical. So I wonder how you would classify Burke and Hare, then. Because in essence, they're a spree killer responding to a, a situation. There was no kind of the usual like ritual that you would associate with a serial killer like it wasn't really for kicks like they had a purpose for it Uh, yeah i think they probably would be more spree killers killers. Hmm. and i mean they did most of their killings in a rather short period of time within a year yeah so i mean they'd almost be in that cusp of between a serial killer and a spree and a spree killer they're more like a spree killer yeah um their spree was really long yes but there wasn't a much cooling off period between the two, between them either, because no. they would have been like. And I associate the cooling off period. This is all coming from my deep knowledge based off of like criminal minds. Uh, the cooling off period is like, it, it's the ramp back up to the need to kill. Yeah. Whereas them, it was um, a want to further their pockets. But yeah. like it wasn't. They had a, drank all the money away and now. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like I can only get my jollies by killing someone. It was, I need beer money. Yeah. Uh, so, some serial killers travel wildly wildly to find their victims, such as Ted Bundy, 
while other remain in the same geographical area, such as the Boston Strangler, which actually Morbid did a three-part on the Boston Strangler. It was mm-hmm. actually quite good. And how... I can't... I don't know if all of his crimes can be attributed to one person. Oh, yeah? Because his victimology changes. So, like, his, the first set of Strangler victims are old ladies, and then the second string uh, are old white ladies, and then the second string are young women of mixed color. Again, this is the criminal minds education I have. It could be a development of the pathology. like Yes, and it could be him getting braver. Yeah, more confident. But... I no longer have to pick the weak. Yeah. I can go with the stronger. Uh, serial killers often demonstrate specific patterns that can be easily identified by police investigators. What motivates serial killers remain a mystery. However, their behavior often fits into specific subcategories. In 1988, Ronald Holmes, a criminology at the University of Louisville, who specializes in the study of serial killers, identified four subtypes of serial killers. The visionary is usually psychotic. The visionary is compelled to murder because they hear voices or see visions ordering them to kill certain types of people. Okay. So yeah, the the fanatical. Yeah. The voice in the coming Manson-y out of the toaster told of, me to do yeah, it. Yeah, like the. Uh, well, yeah, even Manson is like almost not quite that one. Uh, Mission oriented, so targeting a specific group of people who they believe are unworthy to live, and without whom the world would be a better place. The Robert Picton of it all. Yes, or the Jack the Ripper of it all. Right. Um, hedonistic killers kills for the thrill of it because they enjoy the act of killing and sometimes become sexually aroused during the act of murder. Paul Bernardo. Carla Homoka. Mm-hmm. This is really sad, by the way, but yeah. Yeah, that we're going We're just, ahead. like, rattling off of the names of serial killers, yeah. Uh, power-oriented, so kills to exert ultimate control over their victims. These murderers are not psychotic, but they're obsessed with capturing and controlling their victims and forcing them to obey their every command. Golden State. Yeah. East area with the Eurons. Original Night Stalker. Yeah. Oh, and the Toy Box Killer, to an extent, too, although he was a sexual... He was a hedonistic killer, but he was very much into controlling. You know what all these people have in common, with the exception of one? They're all men. Yes. (laughs) Not saying there aren't female serial killers, but like different beasts. We talk a little bit about some rarer. Yes, but like the female serial killers, they tend to be more. I can't even think of a maybe more mission oriented. Yeah, like I think of. Eileen Warnos was a bit of a, as portrayed at least in the movie, was a bit of a mixed bag between, you know, deserve to live, I'm just protecting women, versus, like, out for a purpose, spree killer style of getting something from it. Like the um, lady who murdered a bunch of her family, that was more about money. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, A lot has been said about serial killers, and we could talk about this for hours. (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) So I will just leave this here, because we just did have a little sidebar. So another category is mass murderers killers. And the last week or so, this category has hit the U.S. really hard. The last week? Yes. The last 20 years. (laughs) But the last week has been really bad. On July 29th, a man cut through a fence and opened fire at the Gilroy Garlic Festival killing three people and wounding at least 15 others before police confronted him and shot him. Uh, The motive for this attack is still quite unknown, um, although the Gilroy Garlic Festival is predominantly 
um, in a neighborhood where it's mostly people of color. Um, and I think one of the people that died there was quite young. Mm-hmm. Then on August 3rd, a 21-year-old uh, gunman opened fire in a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, killing 22 people and injuring many others. This is peak back-to-school shopping time in Texas because they go back to school a lot earlier than they do here. Right. They actually go back, uh, not next week, I think it's next week, actually. Did um, you listen to the Daily episodes no, about I've, it? No, I don't listen to the Daily anymore. I can't deal with... They were saying um, that... Um, that Walmart is only like a 10 minute walk from the border with Mexico. So a lot of Mexicans will come up and do their shopping there because they can just walk across and then go back with their equipment or with their uh, purchases. And it's like in the top 10 busiest Walmarts nationwide. Yeah, they were saying like they'll have like 3,000 people in their day. Yeah. Go through their day, especially this time of year. Yeah. So it was very, very busy. And the guy drove halfway across the state to get to that Walmart specifically. Yeah. Because it was a hate crime. Yeah. Um, so some of the victims died protecting their children or grandchildren. So yeah. that, I was, like, crying as I was writing this part. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, there's um, a two-month-old who is now an orphan because yeah. both of their parents were killed um, trying to protect them. The motive for this shooting seems to be racial, with the gunman targeting Latinos. And, of course, this douche has posted a 2,356-word quote-unquote manifesto on the anonymous message board 8chain. That was the Daily's episode today, which, when we're recording, which would have been like a week or so ago, was about uh, 4chan, which became 8chan, and why 8chan is still up and hasn't been shut down and what it would take to shut down, and it was a whole, like... What will it take to shut this shit down? (laughs) It's it's apparently started, like... good. Um, some of the internet providers that are required to run sites like this are starting to pull certificates for it. So as of yesterday, it was offline. Um, so I'm not going to go on to an NRA rant, but this happened in Texas where concealed carry is legal. Yeah. This man still ended up shooting a bunch of people. Yeah. So I have been to Walmart in Texas where the greeter has a rifle. Jesus. I am not even kidding you. I remember, like, one of the first times going in. States are insane. Well, and, like, I mean, the man must have been at least, like, 90, so he wasn't going to run after you. But I can tell you what, he'll go and shoot you in the ass if you tried to steal something. (laughs) So, I mean, like, I have, like, and this happened in Texas. This happened in a a state that is heavily armed, not armed as much as Florida. Concealed carry is legal. Um... And so this, there was a story I was reading where um, a gentleman was trying to distract the shooter by throwing soda bottles at him and he ended up getting shot twice. He survived. He's one of the wounded because he noticed he was picking off people. So the guy, white guy, was trying to like throw soda bottles at him to distract him enough to get people like so people could run. Right. So he had, and then the shooter turned around and shot him. Yeah. But like weary bright deed in a weary world on that one yeah. that's for sure but you know it's it's the so nra about like arming everybody keep us safer that doesn't oh yeah that's all like the only thing you need to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun has been patently untrue since oh i, I know it. that but this is like a <laughs> very good example because this wow. is a state that loves their guns yeah like, not as much as Florida, again, <laughs> but um, this is a state that's very gun-happy. So, less than 12 hours later, the early hours of Sunday morning, at the uh, as the bars in the Oregon district of Dayton, Ohio, 
uh, were closing, a 23-year-old gunman opened fire and killed nine people, including his sister. Mm-hmm. Despite statements made to the contrary, the police don't believe this is overly, overly racial-motivated, although some of the victims were people of color. The police responded within 30 seconds of the mm-hmm. shots starting, and the quick response is credited at keeping the body count down. But still, nine deaths in 30 seconds? Yeah. Well, this is not what the Second Amendment was intended to protect. And that's also not what these guns were created to do. Yeah. They're created to keep people safe in combat. Yes. Not mow down nine people in 30 seconds. owned by civilians for recreational purposes. I mean, this man was wearing a mask. He was wearing a bulletproof vest. He was there to play. Yeah. And not in a good way. Yeah. And the cops luckily took him out. Uh, So they'll never quite know what was... But it was lucky that, you know, they were in a bar area like we haven't in our city for the market they were doing their usual patrol at the end of last call bars closing time so at least they could get there very quickly um so at least that was that mitigated the response so so based on what we think we know about cam and briar they look like spree killers but they're also a team right which is we don't often see in canada it's actually the rarest type of killers Mm mm-hmm uh, the phenomenon of couple killers who forge bonds through killing is very rare. In this case, a couple does not necessarily mean a sexual relationship, but they do have an intimate bond because they've bonded now over violence. Right. And the whole we're on the run. Yes. Bonnie and Clyde-ness of it Yeah. All. Yeah. Um, so according to um, Michael Antfield, uh, who is a criminology professor at the university, at Western University... Uh, there's about 120 similar cases in the U.S., but only three here in Canada. Hmm. So those three cases are uh, Dylan Millard and Mark Smitch, who's convicted of first-degree murder of a stranger who they met when they test drove their truck the victim had posted on Kijiji. Oh. You remember this case? No, but it makes me really freaked out over Kijiji sales and all that from now on. And they also killed uh, the... A woman who they both had a relationship with Mm. separately. Um, And he, Millard, is actually currently waiting trial for the death of his father that was originally called a suicide. But due to the fact that this son is a murderer, murderer. (laughs) uh, they went back and looked and they figured he actually killed his own father because he is, his father was very wealthy. Um, They owned um, a plane. Okay. Aerospace plane charter company. Oh. So, Fancy. Um, yeah, he has, he has a lot of money. Um, and so they, he killed, they killed the girlfriend, the ex-girlfriend first. They figured they burnt her body in an incinerator mm. that was meant to dispose of animal carcasses. Mm. They did a similar thing with the gentleman who was selling the truck on Kijiji. And uh, they asked to go for a test drive. The guy's like, yeah, I'll jump in with you. And the wife never saw him again. And that was like, they didn't need the money. They didn't need the truck. That was... They just needed the thrill. Yeah. And um, now he is also on trial for the death of his father. It was interesting because the the trial for the uh, truck victim, whose name I can't remember, was actually really bigly, big publicized, and then the second trial was publicized, but the media couldn't, until he was convicted, until they were both convicted. Name him. Name, well, they named him, and you could have gone on the Google search, but they actually couldn't say him. Oh yeah, do you not remember 
that uh, guy who sold the truck and got murdered like a couple uh, years ago, that trial, this was the same people. So it wasn't until the end because that wasn't admissible. Right. Um, people were like, and the reason, because I was always like reading it going, why does this name sound familiar? And right. then like, they're like, oh, because they already killed somebody. And you're like, oh, now I remember. Yikers. Uh, so that was one of these people um, who these three cases sort of match. Paul Bernardo and Carla Hamoka, the killers of schoolgirls. Mm-hmm. Uh, William and Lila Young, the chiropractor and midwife couple who sold and killed infants at a Nova Scotia maternity home from the 1920s to the 1940s in what has become known as the Butterbox Baby Cases. What the ever-living F? I've never heard of this, and that seems... There's movies and stuff. I've never heard of it until now, too, and I'm probably going to do a whole podcast on this topic because I want to, like, figure out how this happened. If you're going to do it, fine, because otherwise I say we hit up every single murder show that we know and just be like, you should really do this story because I need to know more. (laughs) I am going to send it to, like, the morbid ladies and be like, you really should look at this butter... Because, like, apparently there's, like, books and movies made about this. Wow. But, yeah. Wow. So, according to Anfield, there's sort of a disordered bond or intimacy that gets created through the commission of violence. And the thought is that even friends or family members, while it may not be an overt sexually attraction to it, this disordered intimacy, in this case, kind of homicidal bromance gets formed and galvanized with each killing. (laughs) Worst type of bromance ever. Yes, I agree. I'll bet you these guys have a lot of Axe body spray at home. Oh, they do. (laughs) Hopefully they will get caught soon with a story this big. Everyone has an opinion. And I said, that guy from those man tracker shows has been talking about how he thinks they're long gone from the area. Well, you know, I get on your horse and prove it. Yeah. Get on your horse and track them. I'll like, if you can find them, dude, have at her, right? (laughs) I think you'll find it very different when you don't have three camera crews following you around. Yeah. (laughs) I roll my eyes, of course, because mm-hmm. there have been some reports that no vehicles have been reported missing in the area, and that's probably why the police, like I said, are still sort of staking it out. But also, it's bush country in non-hunting season. Yeah. So, it could be a case of the hunter goes up in the fall, and it's very clear that somebody's been living in his hunting cabin, and oh my god, his truck's missing. Did it disappear the week after he left it in the spring or the week before he got there in the fall. like That is true. So if they don't find them this summer, it might be a very different story and platform or outlook come the fall. Uh, so, like I said, it's a very rough remote and they would have a hard time getting it without something. So, But there's also a strong possibility that they could die in the woods yeah. in this area and never be found. Well, D.B. Cooper it and it'll just be one of those things. Yeah, because... Like Dan said, they they could be months, years, and they could never be found if they die in this remote area because hunters might stumble upon them in five years. They might never. Yeah. Just because of the dense, the remoteness, the absolute unpopulated nature that is like most of Canada. Yeah. Also, they're not clearly that well balanced mentally. So what's to say one of them doesn't snap? And, like, they say that they, like, one of the dads have said that they do have some sort of, like, wilderness survival training. But, like, that's can only take you so far. Yeah. I mean, there's a big difference between, like, your scout troop camping out back at your parents' house versus northern Manitoba. Like, there's also, like, only so 
far you'll go before you eat a berry you shouldn't. Yeah. AKA, um, <laughs> stupid movie. Uh, without a paddle? No. Um, wild. In the wild. Into the wild. Which one's that? The Reese Witherspoon? No, no, that's just wild. This one is like, um, the guy leaves home and decides to go to uh, Alaska and lives in like a van. Oh, wow. The only reason I know the movie is because Eddie Vedder did the whole um, soundtrack to it. Okay. I think Sean Penn might have directed it. So when he was living in a school bus? Yes. And then just disappeared? Well, he didn't disappear. He ate the berries he shouldn't have and oh, got died. It. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then we tried to get out. He realized that, like, the I Alaskan wilderness... Stranded myself. <laughs> well, the Alaskan wilderness in the winter when he went in looks very different than the Alaskan wilderness in the spring and summer when he tried to come out and all of a sudden the water wasn't froze... Uh-huh. So we couldn't get across the river because now it was springtime runoff. So he ended up just further proof of why you should never go outdoors. Yeah, fresh air is for dead people. Exactly. Um, so who knows until they get t- caught or the cops talk, we will never know quite what happened. We also don't entirely know when the first victim, if the first, the third victim was the first victim, or if he right. was the third victim. Like we don't know the time of death for him yet because the police have released a very little information mm-hmm. like we don't know if the RAV4 that um, they were driving afterwards was the victims how they came across that because we f- the cops found their truck burnt out yeah so yeah the RCMP is playing a lot of that information very close to their chest which I mean fair, fair enough let them have like the secrecy yeah. they need to do what they need to do but yeah. like Hopefully it'll come out at some point because it's... Well, hopefully it'll come out in court and yeah. this isn't like a 30-year conversation where it's like, T.P. Cooper, we think he's in this massive hectare region somewhere. Or the um, case of the cat lady murders that Uncovered just finished. Yes. Yes, exactly. So where that is still... They pretty much know who did it, but they can't prove, prove it. it. So I'm posting an update on my story about the spree killers Clem Cam McLeod and Briar Schwalinski. About 12 hours after we finished recording our episode, the RCMP announced that they had found two bodies in the dense brush outside Gillam, Manitoba, not far from a damaged boat that they found on the riverbank. Autopsies have since confirmed that the bodies were of the two fugitives and that they died of suicide by gunfire. The RCMP are still a little light on details, but they have indicated a larger release of information once they have reviewed all of the details and all of the evidence. However, we do know that they were alive for a few days after the car was found, burned out, as I mentioned, just outside of Gillen, but they had been dead for a number of days before their bodies were found. The RCMP have confirmed that two guns were found by the bodies and they are working to link these to the three murders the two um, tourists, as well as the professor. They also confirmed the suspicion that the RAV4 the pair were driving belonged to one victim, Leonard Dick. Even with their deaths, there's still a lot of work to be done. So the RCMB is still going through a lot of the evidence, doing ballistic uh, reports on the guns that they found, looking through all of their evidence, tracking down cell phones, that sort of jazz that they would have been doing anyway. Um, and we may find out the who and the what of these murders, but we will likely never know why, why these boys did this. Um, and for me, that would drive me nuts if this was my family, just not knowing the why. Our hearts go out to all of the families involved in this case. So anyways, we will post another update once the RCMP 
uh, release more of the information and I suspect that'll probably be in the next few weeks or even month depends on how much um, evidence they collected uh, from around the bodies and from around the boat and yeah we would also uh, so when this update came through Elise and I were texting each other and we both basically said at the same time suck it man tracker so if you remember well I just talked about it this was a few weeks ago for me that man tracker had said that he claimed that they were long gone and probably sending themselves to Mexico or something stupid like that, but indeed they were just dead. So uh, not a great ending to a horribly tragic story or the loss of five lives now in total. So hopefully our next stories will be a bit more brighter. Well, humanity's terrible. <laughs> Humanity is terrible. And we're not for the capybaras. I would be advocating for burning the whole place down. Well, we could just, like, tip it a little bit so that we could get, like, smoked by that comet. We would all mm, be yeah, done. We'd yeah. be all good. Yeah, but then the capybaras. That is true. Yeah, the capybaras probably are not going to survive. I know. And they're the only good thing on this planet, as far as I'm concerned. So if y'all need a palate cleanser, go watch some Golden Girls. Yeah. <laughs> or capybara videos, you know, whichever. Because <laughs> I feel like I need a palate cleanser after this one. Yeah, it's been a rough week. It has been a rough week, but also I, I go through these, like, these mindsets of like, oh my God, this is terrible. How could this have happened again from like, of course it happened again, like this back and forth ebb and flow. And like Eva Longoria was on The Daily Show talking about the whole, like, just treading a very good, I think, careful line for where they have to be of like, we can protect the Second Amendment, but we don't have to protect what's leading to these mass shootings. Which, as far as I'm concerned, as a British historian, I can tell you what the purpose and the intent behind the Second Amendment was. And it's a dead amendment, as far as I'm concerned. That doesn't exist anymore, that cause. So I think you throw it all out. <laughs> I don't think civilians should own guns for any reason. But it is... Ugh. Like, I don't mind guns. I have them in my house. My husband uses them for hunting. Right. We have a bunch of high rifles. We have some shotguns. But we don't own a handgun. I wouldn't really want one in my house. Like, uh, if it doesn't have a purpose to hunt game, mm -hmm. there's no reason for it to be in my house. Yeah. And I'm of the opinion, like, there is no reason to hunt game anymore. So <laughs> the grocery stores are for. But moose and deer can be tasty. And that's fine. The bones and arrows are just fine. <laughs> I mean, good luck, but... How hard it would be to... Anyways. A lot of First Nations did it. <laughs> no, I don't agree with that. But like, I have no problem with if guns as a like as a tool and and what they are in my house, and we keep them locked in a gun safe. Yes, um, because I believe in smart ownership. Unlike when I was house hunting and I went to a place in Kempville and they had a pump action rifle uh, and mounted over a door in a spare bedroom. Like, just on two nails. Like, one nail on the barrel, the other nail on the the um, the trigger. It was just resting there. I literally could have reached up and taken a pump-action shotgun off of the wall and taken it with me. They had children in the house, too, by the way. Yeah. That look on your face was the look I gave my dad. It was like, I don't want to move out here. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, no, I believe in safe gun ownership. <laughs> yes. So, um, for Liz's birthday, she got a toy gun. Ooh. Not for me. Um, <laughs> but um, she occasionally plays with it. And Dan has a strict set of rules. So if she does not play with it in the rules... It gets taken away. gets taken away. 
It has to be put away. As you have firearms in the house, that's probably a good way to start acclimatizing her to the... So, like, she has fake bullets that come with it. Though they have to be stored separately from the gun. She can't point it at people. You know, she can't play with it a certain way. She can't ride it. It's not like a horse. (laughs) Like, all the things a four-year-old wants to do with it. But he's like, no, no, baby, it's your gun. Like, you have to take care of it. You know, if guns are this. So, like, I mean, it's a good way of climatizing her to what guns are. Right. But it's like, I don't remember my dad really ever telling me anything about... And, like, I was raised around guns. Guns were in my house again. They weren't really locked up in a safe because it was the 80s. Right. Um, They were in gun bags next to the hot water tank, I think, for the longest time. (laughs) Alrighty. (laughs) We didn't have a very big house. There's not a ton of storage. Um, But again, like, as as a teenager, as a kid, I never thought... I knew they were there. I knew what they were. But I never felt the need to touch one. Yeah. Because they weren't... Like, I don't know if it's just that culture difference of, yeah, that's a gun. That's what my dad takes to hunt moose. I like moose. I like eating moose. I'm okay with that. Right. If it means more moose for me, I'm (laughs) totally okay. Uh, So I don't know if it's just that different culture of like, ooh, look at the handgun in the, you know, bedside table. Yeah. Or the drawer where you keep the knives. Yeah. That's completely... Like, I guess if you're going to have a firearm in your home for safety, you don't want to... in a gun safe in your garage if you might need it in the middle of the night for home invasion but like also I think you need to look at the whole home invasion issue as well and like let's start fixing the problem there to help fix the gun problem further down the road yeah because that's not our reality luckily thank god and also that doesn't really like there's not too many home invasions that are there was one home invasion here in the village like the year I moved in you know what they did they threw apples at the old lady's wall and then left. And it was only discovered a week later when her grandkids visited and had to ask Granny, why are there apple bits all over your kitchen? She's like, oh, people broke in and throw apples at my walls. That is the length that like home invasions go to here. <laughs> I don't know if there's ever been a home invasion in my area. <laughs> like, home invasions obviously are... But I'm just saying that like, I don't know if there's too many have been stopped by actual people. With, it's mostly, uh, I think, that story I shared with you from BuzzFeed couple years ago where it was talking about this girl who believes in having her gun and and she ended up shooting her like roommate yeah or people will answer the door for like kids who are lost in the neighborhood and they'll take a shotgun blast to the chest because they think it's a home invasion was just a kid looking for help yeah i mean in that case the kid was black and the homeowner was white so i think there was some other things happening there but yeah, yeah this case was like they were drinking, and her roommate went out to get something out of his car and came back in, and he was, like, stomping around, and she, some reason, was convinced, even though they had just been drinking and were going to bed, that he was... Yeah, a threat. A, yeah, a threat, and then when he opened her door, she shot him. He survived. Good for him. Um, and obviously, they don't live together anymore. <laughs> um, and he does not like guns. Like, he'd already... Um, someone held him up at gunpoint at his job. I think this was in Florida. Not shocking. Mm. Um, and he does like, no, I don't like guns. I don't believe in them. I never have. And her response was, I still want a gun to per- to protect myself because what if it wasn't my roommate? But now she, instead of keeping it under her pillow, she keeps it in the dresser. So it gives her that like second to think about it. So this person has learned nothing. No. People who keep their guns under their pillows should be a self-correcting problem like it really should i think of how i sleep and how like crazy my pillows get by the end of the night and i would be dead within the first week if that was me i just know it (laughs) 
Or I'd wake up to like a hole in the wall and be like, oh, yikes. <laughs> the kids are like, the cats are like, well, I don't know what happened, but I did not like it. <laughs> well, think about every time the cats knock something over in the middle of the night. You'd be oh, like, it's not that. It's worse than that. These floorboards in this 140 year old home creak when my fat ass cats walk across them. <laughs> So I'll be lying in bed watching TV, like, really into, like, an episode of Outlander or something like that. And then I'll hear, like, creak, creak, creak. I'll be like, oh, my God, what happened? And my response is to reach for the baseball bat I have under my bed like a normal human being. Not the gun I have under my pillow. You would have shot your cats a lot. Multiple times by now. They would be so dead. Oh, boy. On that note, I'm glad we brought this whole situation back around to the laughs. Yes. So we could leave our listeners with a bit of a smile, hopefully, rather than a, the world is terrible. <laughs> yes. Please don't report me to the SPCA. <laughs> the kids are, the, ca- the kids, the cats are still alive. They are. <laughs> Some days, it's real close. <laughs> well, that's our episode for this week. Uh, if you would like to learn more about the show, see our show notes, head over to the website, which is www.rabbitholespodcast.com. While you're there, check out the support tab, which links you to our Patreon page, so you can come aboard as a patron of the show. Or check out the merch tab, which takes you to our Redbubble store, so you can pick up some of our lovely merch. And if you want to get in touch with us to let us know about a rabbit hole that you enjoy falling down or you would like us to fall down for you, you can always email us at rabbitholespodcasts at gmail.com. And you can also reach us on the social medias. We are on Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast, Twitter at Rabbit Holes Pod, and Facebook at Rabbit Holes Podcast page. Uh, if you like what you're doing, you can rate mm-hmm. us or review. If you like what you're doing, is what you said. Did I? Again, yes. Sorry. <laughs> if you like what we are doing. There it is. You can rate us, uh, give us a review, recommend us, or just tell everybody that you know how awesome we are and that they can listen too, and we can maybe have two people listening to us in Serbia. Yeah, totally. Yeah. We're still doing good in Norway, the occasional Norwegian listener. The UK as well. Got a couple of cities, so let's let's be pocketed globally. Yeah, like we could be really big in Serbia. I would like a Tanzanian listener, for example. There you go. There you yes. go. Yes. Uh, and as a reminder, the Ottawa Podcast Festival is coming up. Uh, the next episode for our show was supposed to come out the day after the festival. Uh, again, I'm not going to be up super early to post, so it, it will come out next Sunday as normal, but just a little bit later in the day. So make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast so that you'll get it when it does come out. And speaking of the festival, head over to www.ottawapodcastfestival.com and pick up your tickets. 20 bucks a ticket gets you in the door for nine hours plus worth of content from nine great Ottawa shows. Don't forget, everyone, by using the discount code PODFAN2019 at checkout, you get $5 off each ticket that you purchase. So once again, the discount code is PODFAN2019, all caps P-O-D-F-A-N-2019, and that'll get you $5 off every ticket you buy. Hope to see you on August 24th. So. Yep, so it'd be us. We'll be there. Um, do we still like this? So oh, do we still like this? Uh, life in red. Yep. Um, country, country music. Scene partners. The trail went cold. So the other day, where am I at? Lowdown. Lowdown to breakdown. Breakdown to lowdown. 
think it is, uh, queers, quotes, and cocktails. They're doing a custom cocktail with the barman, which I'm not a drinker, but I'm still looking forward to seeing what they do. Yes. How many am I at? I think that's all of them. I think that's all of them. If oh, we and miss- this is a disaster. Oh, and this is a disaster, yes. Yes. So, uh, but the uh, festival's website has a list of all the shows that submitted, the shows that got shortlisted, and all the shows in Ottawa that we know about. So do check that out so that you can see how much podcasting is happening in the city. And if you are a show in Ottawa and you're not on our list, let us know and we will add you. Oh, totes. Absolutely. So there's only one last thing to do today, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.